Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Okay, so the theme y'all been looking at uh, is the messiness, the messiness of life and how God interacts with us in the messiness of life. And we're going to look at a story tonight that's fairly famous if you've grown up around the church uh, by a guy named David. Okay, and some of you, I won't ask for a show of hands on this one, but there's probably a lot of you, even if you did grow up in the church, that if somebody said, listen, hey, give me your really honest opinion, okay, not the Sunday school answer, you'd say, I got to be honest, I think a lot of times the Bible is boring. Um, I felt that way, okay, and I'm, I work in full-time ministry where I'm supposed to, like, teach the Bible all the time, and there's parts of the Bible needed. Sometimes it just seems a little boring. Sometimes it feels out of touch. Sometimes it feels irrelevant, and I understand there are some parts of the Bible that certainly feel that way. But I promise you, I think I can promise you this, you won't feel that way about this story. It will feel like something that applies very much to your day-to-day life and the experiences that you're having, okay? So there's this famous guy in the Old Testament named David. Probably a lot of you have heard of him, King David. When he was a teenage boy, a prophet of God came to town and had like this anointing ceremony and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel, which was the king of God's people. And immediately he was filled with the spirit of God as a teenager. And yet he had to wait years until he finally actually became the king. So we're going to look at a story later in David's life. He's probably in his fifties. So for 30 plus years, David has been a faithful guy. He hasn't been perfect, but he's been very faithful. He's been a great example. He'd be the kind of person you want to model your life after trusting God, serving God, obeying God. And then we're going to pick up and look at this story, okay? He let his guard down and something really bad happens. Now, the first point, okay, it's very clever. It's this, much sin. All right, it's just, you're going to see a lot of sin right off the bat from David's life. So let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. That was his number one general. So just notice, when the kings are supposed to be going out to battle, David didn't go. He sent his general instead. Look at the last sentence of that verse. But David remained at Jerusalem. So part of what has happened is everything in David's life is going well. And he's kind of gotten used to it. And he's kind of gotten fat and happy and he's gotten lazy. And y'all probably heard this phrase before. uh, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. You ever heard that before? Too much free time on your hands is usually a bad thing. Because all of us have sin dwelling in us, even the best of us, and it tends to find a way out when we're just laying around bored and have nothing to do. That's one of the dangers of college in America today. There's a lot of great things about college in America. But sometimes you can have so much free time, you get yourself into trouble you might not otherwise have. And look at what's going to happen to David. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, so it seems like he's been taking a long nap. Right? You can identify with that. You're like, man, I did that today. Um... And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Okay, so there's a woman taking a bath. She thinks in the privacy of her courtyard, but his, he lives in the palace. So he's up higher. He can see down and she's beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, just side note, that's not necessarily a wrong thing to do. Hey, who's that girl? But there are some times when we make decisions that might in and of themselves be innocent But in a certain context, they're not innocent anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's just hypothetically say one of you has had a bad relationship. Every time you end up hanging out with this guy, it never goes good. And you hear that he's going to be at this certain party this certain night. You're like, well, I'll just go to the party anyway. But you know in the back of your mind, I probably don't need to hang out with this guy. 
Is it wrong to say you're going to go to a party one night? No. But if you know where it might lead, you ought to just not do it. David should have just walked away. He should have gone home, gone back to his bedroom. But he said, ah, I just want to send a servant over there. Figure out who this woman is. Okay? Look at verse 4. Once he finds out, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now, this is a kind of a side note. the, the, The Bible is not really clear. Was Bathsheba, that's the woman's name, was she complicit? Did she want to come? Was she excited the king wanted to see her? Because she's a married woman? Or was she not excited and she felt kind of forced? We don't know for sure. Probably the best understanding is she was kind of a part of this. But here's the point. Tonight we're not really looking at her. We're mainly looking at David. We're just focusing in on this really godly man's sin. Because one of the lessons we want to learn is even the best of us, me, you, your dad, your mom, your preacher, whoever, the best of us have the worst stuff living in us deep down. Okay, Verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And David sent word to Joab, that's his general out in the field, send me Uriah the Hittite, that's her husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So he's basically like, hey, Uriah, I just wanted you to come home, kind of give me a report on the battle. Then David said to Uriah, here's the real reason he wanted him to come home. Hey, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to him, to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and the ark. How many of you have seen the old movie? I think it's like 1977, so it's older than... Everybody in here, including myself, uh, but it's uh, Harrison Ford, their original Indiana Jones movie. Anybody ever seen that movie? Okay. And it's the Ark of the Covenant. And basically what that represented in the Old Testament times was it was like the presence of God, where God was like physically showing up his presence on planet Earth. Okay. So he's saying, listen, Joab, all the other troops, all my other compatriots, all my boys, Even the ark of God, they're out in the field doing battle. And I came home to give a report. They can't sleep with their wives, so I'm not going to sleep with my wife. This guy's just loyal. He's faithful. Now just pause for a second. If this was a modern day movie coming out of Hollywood, the story would have been different right here, right? You'd be like, yeah, David's this great, big, powerful politician, military leader. Bathsheba is this young little damsel in distress and her husband's not away and they have an affair and it's passionate and it's wonderful and then her husband comes home and he's like some loser and a wife beater you know this you know got a huge dip in or something and he's always drunk and he's been beating his wife and you kind of say well i'm glad they had an affair because this guy's such a loser but your eyes not that way okay and i wasn't trying to say anything about dip there all right you want to go have a dip later that's between you and the lord all right (laughs) Uriah comes home and he is this faithful, loyal soldier. And David's like, hey man, you came home. You might as well go home and sleep with your wife. And Uriah's like, not me. If my buddies can't come home, I'm not coming home. I'll just sleep out of the guard shack. So if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Look at what David's going to do now. He doesn't give up very easy. He is desperate to cover up his offense. He does not want this to come out. Just a side note, guys, but this is an important one. So many times when we sin 
and we start to get exposed, let's get honest. What's our first response? I got to cover it up. And usually our attempts to cover up, they don't make it better. They just make it worse, right? It's like we're just digging our own grave. And that's what David is doing. Okay, so verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So just one more night. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And that evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Most of us know too much alcohol a lot of times tends to lead to something else. So David thought, well, I just get him drunk. One, one commentator on this passage said, Uriah was more godly even when he was drunk than David was when he was sober. It's pretty convicting. All right. So now look what David's going to do. Plan B didn't work. Let's go to plan C. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now just think about this. This is rich. He writes a letter. Almost certainly he seals it so that Uriah can't read it. And he says, Uriah, make sure that you give this to your general when you get back to the front lines. And Uriah takes off. In the letter he wrote, so here's what Uriah is carrying in his own hand. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Now, another important note, guys. Listen, our sin is never just personal. It's never just between me and God. It's never just between me and me. Even the stuff we do in the secret confines of our own mind or just alone in the dark, sin always splatters. It always has a relational effect. It always has a communal effect. You never get away with sin not hurting you and not hurting others. And this is a pretty extreme example. But what started with just a little laziness, led to some lust, led to some adultery, led to some cover-up, led to a literal murder. It's pretty heavy. And it's not going to get better yet. And what the second point is, it's really clever too. More sin. We started out with much sin, a lot of sin. And now point two, we got more sin. It's like it keeps going down. Skip down to verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us, and they came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So basically, he's giving a report. The Joab said, Give him a normal report, but make sure you mention, because Joab knows this is what he really cares about, Uriah is dead. And look at what David's going to say, verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. You see what David's doing? David's basically saying, hey, you know, go back and tell Joab, I know some guys died, but this kind of stuff happens. People die in battle. It's not his fault. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Move on. Stuff happens. And what do we see here in David that unfortunately I think we see a lot of it in our own life is this, guy's. We are modern-day experts at minimizing our sin, aren't we? And spinning it and blame-shifting, saying, not really my fault. 
Everybody's doing it. Could be worse. What's the big deal? She wanted it too. I mean, we, we just always have a way to say, I didn't really technically do anything that bad. Verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the mourning was over, that's usually seven days, so she spent about a week mourning for her dead husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So, she cries for a week, they had the funeral, and then David said, let's go ahead and get married. We're going to cover up this pregnancy one way or the other. People just think, got pregnant on the honeymoon night. Now, up to this point, and we essentially read the whole chapter, I skipped a couple of verses for time's sake, okay? But you read the whole chapter, you know one thing, or one person that hasn't been mentioned in the entire chapter yet? is God. It it seems like David and Bathsheba got away with it. They had this great night. She gets pregnant. They have this cover-up plan. They don't even actually actually kill him. He's a soldier. He dies in war. It seems convenient. It seems like they've gotten away with it and they can live happily ever after. But that's not the case. Because basically it says in the very last sentence of the chapter... But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Go back to verse 25 for just a second. Remember what David said to Joab. Do not let this matter trouble you. And literally it should be translated, don't let this thing displease you. It's the same phrase. And then at the end of verse 27 it says, David might be saying, hey, don't let this thing displease you. But it's like, God is watching. God knows. He's the unseen seer. You may not see him, but he sees you. You may not know about him, but he knows about you. You may not feel his reality, but he feels the reality of you. He's totally aware. And he doesn't like our sin. He takes it seriously. He takes it personally. Now he's going to get involved. I mean, basically, this story covers about two chapters, and that literally, that's like the middle point of the story. It's like when God gets involved, everything's about to start changing. Look at what God's going to do. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is his prophet. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but the one little ewe lamb. It's like a little girl lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and his children and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and line his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now back then, ancient Israel, the kings, part of what they did is they would be like a judge as well. They would judge in legal lawsuits or something like that. So Nathan comes and says, hey, David, King David, I got a case for you. Right? Rich man, poor man. Rich man, he's got plenty of animals. Poor man didn't have much, but he had a little pet lamb. And back then, you know, we have pet dogs and cats. They had pet lambs. And they love this little pet lamb, right? Sleeps in the bed, eats at the table with them. It's like one of the family. And the rich man has a buddy come over and he's like, I don't want to kill one of my flock. I'll go take the little poor lamb of the poor man. And he slaughters it. It's a crime. It's theft, and it's mean-hearted. And look at how David responds. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, it's like a vow, 
the man who has done this deserves to die. That's an overreaction. I mean, he killed a lamb. But David's mad. Verse 6, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, that was according to the Old Testament law. If you stole something, you were supposed to repay it four times over. So if I stole 20 bucks from Wynn tonight, and I got caught, and we lived in the Old Testament days, I'd have to pay Wynn back 80 bucks. So now, David, he kind of explodes in anger, then he gets the law right. Now look at what Nathan is going to do. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Let me make a couple points here that are super important, okay? Um, don't, Don't get caught up right now on back in the Old Testament, even godly people had multiple wives. It was sin. It was wrong. They shouldn't have done it. But it's almost like God gave them a pass on that one thing in the Old Testament. If you're like, I don't understand that. I don't like that. As soon as this meeting over, Hamilton will be in the back. He'll answer all your questions about that, okay? But for right now, just stay focused on what God is saying. He's saying, David, you were a little shepherd boy. I chose you. I saved you. I protected you. I turned you into a king. I made you filthy rich. I gave you multiple wives. And you know what? If that hadn't have been enough, I'd have given you more if you just asked me. There's at least two really important points we need to get from what God is saying there. The first is this. Sin never satisfies. You think about whatever the main sin, temptation, you tend to struggle with in your life. For David right here, we're talking about lust, we're talking about sex. And there's been lots of people that live since David that have thought, if I could just have enough sex, if I could just have enough women, enough different experiences, then I'd really be happy. David had multiple women, and it wasn't enough. When he saw a new one, he's like, got to have her. I mean, understand the point that I'm trying to make here. King's wives weren't allowed to get headaches. You understand what I mean? He had that kind of power and influence. And yet he's like, no, 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 I want more. It was insatiable. And look, guys, apply the same point in anything. If it's money, you get all the money in the world, it won't be enough. If it's reputation and popularity, you can be the king or the queen of campus, it'll never be enough. If it's power and prestige and position, you can get all that. It'll never satisfy the depths of your soul. The only thing that can really do that is God. There's a a guy named David Jeremiah, he said this, sin is never satisfied. It gets more and more daring in its opposing of God. You sin once, you think you get away with it, and you're tempted to do it again. Here's the second point I want us to get from this verse. Every time that you and I sin, we don't sin in a vacuum. We don't sin from a place of neutrality. We sin against the backdrop of God's grace. You understand what I mean by that? You see what God's saying? I mean, God is coming to David kind of like a jilted lover. He's saying, David, I blessed your socks off. Why have you responded this way? I mean, I want you to just imagine for a second. The best boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, or for the couple of us in here that are married, 
spouse that you could ever imagine. And you're in this great relationship. And that person loves you so well, and they serve you, and they honor you, and they respect you, and it's the greatest relationship in the world. But one night you lose your mind, you do something terrible, and you go off and have an affair, and they come home and they catch you with this other person. How are they going to feel? They're going to feel destroyed. I've loved you so well, and this is how you repay me? And in a sense, that's what God is saying. Now look at verse 9. This is still basically God speaking to David through the prophet. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? I want us all to pause, again, myself included, and just think about the last time that you talked to somebody about something sinful you did. Think about the way that we tend to talk about our sin. Had a little slip up. Made a little mistake. Did something kind of stupid. Right? What God says is, when you sin, it's like you hated my word. It's like you say, all this Bible crap? I don't care about that. Middle of verse 9. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So again, we're experts at saying, well, technically I didn't kill anybody, God. Technically, what I was watching wasn't technically pornography. And God just, God is amazing at cutting through all the excuses. He's like, hey, David, you took a man's wife, he wasn't yours, and you killed him. Yeah, it was the Ammonite sword, but technically, you're the murderer, David. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. It gets... He says, guys, it's not just that you hate my word. When you sin, it's like you're saying, I hate you, God. I don't want your way in my life. I don't want you to be my master. I don't want you to be my Lord. I don't want you to be my Savior. I want to do life my own way. I want to be my own God. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Basically, civil war comes later, and four of David's sons will die. A fourfold restitution, but it won't about four lambs. Four of his sons are going to die because of this. Guys, sin is never worth it. Whatever pleasure there is in sin, and there is pleasure in sin for a season, isn't there? It can be so sweet for a little while but it has a terrifying aftertaste. A guy named Matthew Henry said this, understand what the best men, and you could say and women, are when God leaves them to themselves. When God is not active in our lives, we really screw them up, don't we? I don't know about you, but I know I do. Now some of you are like, and this just got way too real and heavy. Okay, we're about to go up. All right, first point, Much sin. Second point, more sin. Third point, more grace. And if you don't remember anything else, remember this tonight. There's a verse in Romans that says this, for where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And part of why I want us to look at this real, true, biblical story about this 
so-called supposedly godly man that did some really terrible, wicked things is also want you to see how God responded in really amazing, shocking, almost scandalous grace. So it's like as soon as Nathan stops talking, right? I mean, he, I mean guys, I mean, we, we've all heard the phrase, right, going off on somebody. Dude, I saw this guy in the football game tonight. He like, went off on this guy. Nathan just went off on David, right? I mean, he's like, you hate God. You hate his word. God's going to kill your kids. I mean, just, it's pretty freaking harsh, right? This was not a seeker-sensitive service by Nathan. And I want you to look at what David says in verse 13. As soon as Nathan stops talking, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And we can't even really do it justice, guys, because in the Hebrew, it's literally two words. You can't even, you can't even do it in English. In Hebrew, it's like he just said, sin against God. He doesn't cry. He doesn't weep. He doesn't do like any emotional penance. Nor does he try to spin it and say, well, Nathan, you should have been there. She was really beautiful, man. He doesn't try to make excuses. He basically just says, you're right. I'm wrong. I sinned. I blew it. It's my fault. That's pretty surprising. That's pretty impressive. And then look at how Nathan, again, the mouthpiece of God is going to respond. Next sentence. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Again, Old Testament law. What was supposed to happen if you committed adultery? Death penalty. What was supposed to happen if you committed murder? Death penalty. So Nathan is like going off on David's head about how terrible this sin was. And Nathan says, I sinned. And Nathan says, God's taking your sin away. You're not going to die. It's over. Really? But it keeps going. I mean, God didn't take any time to consider. Well, let me think about it because I'm really mad. Just instantly. Oh, you repent? I forgive you. That easy. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So guys, listen. There can be total healing, total forgiveness for sin. And yet there can still be scars. You understand that? I mean, any of you ever had like a major surgery, blew out your knee or something? ACL, whatever. You rehab it at six months and now you're like, my knee is better than it used to be. Totally better, stronger. Still a scar though, right? Sin always comes with scars, guys. And the sin is never worth it. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat any food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. You you get the picture here? Nathan says, God forgives you, David, but there will be consequences. Your baby's going to die. And it's like, no sooner has Nathan walked away than the baby gets sick. What does David do? It's like he falls on his face, starts praying. He won't eat anything. He won't talk to him. He's just begging God, please have mercy on my child. Save him. And his servants are like, this is crazy. You've got to eat something. You can't. And he's like, leave me alone. I'm just praying. 
And then after seven days, the baby dies. And the servants are kind of freaked out. They're like, oh no. I mean, he was kind of distraught when the baby was sick. Now the baby's dead. And David says, I can see him whispering about me. Is the baby dead? And they're worried he might get up and commit suicide. But look at what he's going to do. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. And then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. How's that seem to you guys? He got up, took a bath, put on some cologne, went to church, had a worship service, sang some songs, came back home and said, you know, I hadn't eaten anything in a week. I'm pretty hungry. Can you give me something to eat? And he sits down to eat. I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Sounds like he's lost his mind. That's what the servant said too. And they asked him about it. Okay, verse 21. Then the servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? You guys, get this. Look at his response. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. Now, just a few thoughts by way of application. What in the world is going on here? And here's the the most important point that I want all of us to get tonight, guys. David got grace. And by that, I don't just mean David received grace. I do mean that, but I mean more than that. David received grace, and he received it so much that like, he fully, really deeply understood it. And he experienced it. And let me just give you four quick reasons you can see from this story how you knew like he got grace. I was talking to somebody tonight. said, I grew up in the church. I heard all the stuff, but I didn't really understand it until later in life. Right? A lot of us have testimonies like that. David really got it. Why? Because, listen... Although he realized how bad he had sinned and that God was going to discipline him, when his baby got sick, he was not afraid to go to God and say, God, please have mercy on my child. Because he knew, hey, God, you said you forgave me, so we're friends again. So I can come in here and ask big, bold prayers. Because he knew, I'm not here praying based on my merit, based on my performance, based on my goodness. I'm a freaking murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a terrible dude. But I'm not here praying on my merit. I'm praying based on your character, that you're a gracious God and you like to give good gifts to your kids. He prayed boldly. The second thing, when God said, no, sorry, David, I'm not going to give you what you wanted. David didn't pout. He didn't get mad. He said, okay, I tried. I asked, I hope me. Who knows? God is so crazy with grace. I thought maybe he'll my kid. He didn't do it. I still love God. I still trust God. I still submit to God. Even when He hurts me. One author said it this way, to be the man after God's own heart is not to be sinlessly perfect, but to be, among other things, utterly submissive to the accusing Word of God. You understand what he's saying there? When when the Holy Spirit comes near and He convicts us of sin, that we say, you're right. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I'm sorry. And if there's consequences that come with it, I take it because I trust you. The third thing, he didn't live in a tit-for-tat, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back type relationship. 
Guys, let's just please be honest for a second. Even if you're like the strongest, most mature, oldest Christian in this room, most of the time the way that we interact with other human beings and even the way we interact with God is kind of like, hey, you do something nice for me, I'll do something nice for you. Isn't it? I'm going to try to say, no, I just wanted to get you a gift. But really we're like, I sure hope she gets me a nice gift when it's my birthday. David didn't interact that way with God. I mean, guys, God just killed his child. And what he said is, I'll still worship you. There's a famous verse in the book of Job. If you think David suffered a lot, there's a guy that suffered even more named Job. Write this down, go look at it if you want to. It's really powerful. Job chapter 13, verse 15. And here's what it says. Job was sick. He thought he was dying. And he says, though he slay me, he's talking about God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He says, God, even if you kill me, I'm going to keep trusting you. (laughs) That's real faith. Not just I trust you when things are good. I trust you all the time. The fourth point, okay? He doesn't live in fear, but he lives in faith. He goes back to normal life. Guys, try to put yourself for just a second in David's shoes. How did this whole thing start? By sleeping with Bathsheba. But now he's married to Bathsheba. It's his wife. And once he's forgiven and he's right with God and they're married, he goes on, he sleeps with Bathsheba, they have another baby. He's not living terrorized. What's God going to do? He's living in faith. God's a good God. He's going to bless me. So, this is going to be really quick. There are three wrong ways to apply this passage tonight, guys. Okay? The first one is this. To say, you know what? This doesn't apply to me. Because I've never committed murder. I've never committed adultery. Okay? I bet most of us have heard. We grew up in the South. There's this place in Matthew chapter 5 where the Lord Jesus Christ says... If you've even looked at a woman to lust, it's the same at the heart level of committed adultery. If you've ever just gotten sinfully angry at somebody and said, you fool, it's the same at the heart level as murder. We've all done that, right? We're all guilty. The second thing is, the wrong way to apply this is that you don't take sin seriously because of grace. You're like, dude, this is great. God forgave David murder and adultery. That means I can do whatever I want. If you walk out of here thinking that, I, I'm sorry. I mean, you haven't been paying attention, right? I mean, it's like really bad stuff happened. Yes, he got right with God. But his earthly life in some sense was in shambles. And the third thing, and this might be the most important. You shouldn't come away from this story primarily motivated to obey God out of this fear. Because God's so holy, he's going to get me. You ought to primarily come away from this story saying, God is so good and loving and warm and gracious and kind. Why would I not want to serve such a God? Now here's the last thought, and I promise we're done. I've already said this, but the Old Testament law did say David was supposed to die because of this sin. And remember what Nathan said. He said, David, the Lord's taking your sin away. Which just kind of begs the question, where did he take it? And he literally, if you want to get real technical, where did he take it? He took it into the future. If you trace down David's lineage, about 14 generations, there's another king of Israel that was born. The ultimate son of David, the ultimate king of God's people. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. The unseen seer became seen. And he came to earth. 
And he's the only human being to ever live a sinless life. No lust, no anger, no sin. And he trusted God all the way to the end, and God literally did slay him on the cross as a substitute for David and for all those people in the past that have ever trusted in the one true God and for everybody in this room and everybody in the future that would ever trust in the one true Savior, we don't get the wrath that we justly deserve from God because it was laid on Christ on the cross. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that ought to transform everything in our heart and make us want to live for such a gracious God who's joyful and cleaning up our messy lives. Doesn't cost us anything. Cost Him everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so unworthy. Please take old truths that we may have known for a long time and sink them deeper into the basement of our heart and soul and make them burn and shine and change us for the better from the inside out. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.